Hello and welcome to the latest Boardroom Talk podcast. This is Harriet Klarfeldt. Today I'm joined by Ian Jenks, who is Executive Chairman at Brady. By way of introduction, Brady provides trading and risk management software to the global commodity and energy markets. It's been around for 30 years and listed on AIM in 2004. It has a market capitalisation of around £55 million. The last couple of years at Brady have seen quite a lot of change, with challenging trading conditions in the commodities market requiring cost-cutting and the restructuring among commodity trading businesses. This led to a profit warning for Brady at the end of 2015. The company subsequently initiated a strategic review, changing its business model and adopting a one-company approach. And new members of management were introduced. Ian joined Brady in June 2016. Brady has been covered on and off by Investors Chronicle over the last few years. Considering the changes the company has been undergoing, this seemed a good time to touch base again. Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. To start with, it would be helpful to hear an overview of what Brady really does and how it helps companies working in the commodities markets. On top of that, who are your customers and what sorts of industries and regions do you operate in? Sure. So Brady is a technology company that delivers software solutions to the commodity and energy markets. So we... We enable people to manage the whole of their logistics process from when something comes out of the ground, uh, how it's transported, we hedge it, we trade it, we do margin calls on it, but eventually whatever's in our systems gets delivered somewhere. So if a trader gets it wrong, he can end up with a a, a bucket of uh, steel on his doorstep. So typically our customers are are between 2 and 40 billion, and we are at the centre of the logistics, uh, planning and process and control of their businesses. So they would be people uh, like, uh, like Glencore, and uh, an LDC and Traxxas, Norilsk on the commodity side and Statoil uh, on the on the um, energy side. One of the changes that you've been implementing at Brady is moving away from one, a one-off licensing model and towards a recurring revenue model. I think that was one of the changes that was sort of introduced over the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you look at Brady's uh, historical uh, results over the last four or five years, it's been very much boom and bust. And that's been driven by one-off license fees, where in a, you know, if, a, if a license fee uh, arrives in December, it's a great year and uh, everyone's very happy. If it arrives in January, you ha- you've had a profit warning for the previous year. And moving to a an annual recurring fee allows us to match our costs and our revenues. So that's moving us to a, a business model, as I said, that allows us to match our, our costs with our revenues on a consistent basis going forward. And do you have a target in mind for how much of the top line you want to constitute recurring revenue? So I think at the last count, it was around 68%. Yep. So um, if we look at it for this year, it's about 68%. It'll take two or three years to move right across because a number of our customers uh, will have already budgeted. Our, our software is typically in a customer for 15 or 20 years. So in terms of their planning cycles, these are, are long-term commitments. We have uh, some customers who Uh, existing customers who will not want to change in this cycle because it's already in as a license fee. So you have to wait to the next cycle before you can actually change them. Uh, Today, it's at 68%. I think we'd be targeting about 85% uh, recurring revenues. And the balance of 15% 
uh, will actually come from um, customized development or actually strategic consulting. Okay, so it sounds like customers don't really tend to change their software provider very often. Why is that? Is it because your software is so integrated into their systems or is there another reason? No, absolutely. So once you're in, um, then it's, you are at the heart of a multi-billion dollar business and, uh, and changing is, you know, is really difficult. So to do a rip and replace is really uh, you know, a major, major commitment to any of these companies. The challenge, of course, is to be able to uh, enter you know, other customers that aren't your customers where you have a competitor is already there. And uh, one of the other strategic things we're doing is moving to a microservices architecture built on the Brady framework. And that enables us to link, link new functionality done in the very latest, you know, using the very latest software techniques, and not just to extend our own solutions, uh, but also to, uh, to tack on to uh, our competitors' solutions. And just in terms of competitors, are there any sort of direct competitors of Brady in the UK? And what are your sort of barriers to entry? So there are you know, there are other competitors. Um, we are, however, the only publicly listed uh, technology company in this space. Uh, all the others are owned by private equity, uh, they, and they would be, um, uh, you know, people like uh, Triple Point and Allegro. On the sort of recurring revenue theme, you said at the start of this year that there's been a sea change in the mood and focus of this business and you were entering the year with considerable optimism. So the recurring revenue looks encouraging. I think your total revenue was down slightly at the half-year stage, but recurring revenue had made up a much larger proportion of that. So you, at the same time, you did report wider pre-tax losses in your half-year results. Are you still quite as optimistic as you were at the start of this year about the way performance is going now? Yes, I think I, I am. Um, the, you know, this is a very difficult transition for a company to make, um, but it's one that so far we're executing um, extremely well. I think our, our largest challenge is, and, and if we go back to the, the reasons that we're doing something different, you know, we have uh, over the last several years acquired eight businesses and uh, which we have, uh, have let do their own thing. Um, and that's not a scalable model you know, to buy a privately held business um, and put a public company overhead on it. Uh, you, know, you know, the results are, are hardly likely to be, uh, to be good. Um, and so you end up reaching that glass ceiling at somewhere around thirty million pounds, where in, you know you, you're buying businesses to replace uh, revenue that you're losing, um, and that doesn't deliver a return for your shareholders. And the only way to solve that problem is actually to integrate the businesses as a single company, where you have company-wide functions. So um, in development, you have one way of doing it one set of software uh, tools that you use, not 10. Um, and, you know, and therefore, you can actually build a scalable model. So make doing that transition and taking the people with you is extremely difficult. You know, many of, our, uh, many of our, our staff have been with the company for 20 or 30 years. Uh, and persuading them to move in a different direction is extremely challenging. Okay, and I mean you've touched on this already, but obviously the trans transitional process does generate costs. And I suppose it, would your argument be that these are sort of short-term to medium-term costs, but ultimately they will generate 
better growth in the long term. Absolutely. So we would expect to be investing in this change this year and next. Um, and uh, you know, we expect the transition to transformation to being complete by the end of next year. And then, you know, and then we're positioned to be able to execute a growth strategy. So if you look at what Brady does today, what we really do is automate Excel spreadsheets. So um, most of our customers started uh, and ran their businesses on on Excel spreadsheets. I mean, complicated Excel spreadsheets, but Excel spreadsheets, uh, and we uh, and we we automate those processes to add efficiency into their businesses. Where we're going beyond that is actually into the world of of actually optimizing those processes and to do that uh, we need to be looking at how their how their data is actually managed and what insights we can deliver from that so data management is something you and i've actually spoken about before um and i think you were pretty excited about that part of the business and you i think you sort of said that you do have a lot of customer data um at at your fingertips at, at brady absolutely so we're absolutely at the heart of these customers and being at the heart of these customers, uh, we have all of the data as to the profitability of every single stage uh, of that process. Uh, In addition, with modern tools, you're able to take those data sets, you're able to take data sets from uh, third parties. Uh, So uh, if you look at our electricity customers, they're undergoing a a massive change in their market. So we now have, you know, traditionally they would have been a central electricity generating board who would fix their price for 12 months. Uh, They would have a series of customers who would know what that price was uh, for the next 12 months. And they would have three power stations. And if the weather got a little bit cold, they would, uh, they'd turn up the wick on one of the power stations. It's a very predictable business. Uh, Today with the drive towards renewables, um, so in the Nordics, which is the market that we dominate, which is the first market to deregulate, um, they now have uh, a huge, you know, thousands and thousands of wind farms. They uh, they do have some solar, and they have uh, so so we have lots of now micro generators, uh, which may be you know, a farmer who's put up a, a wind turbine. Uh, so now the generation actually happens when the wind blows. It's not demand-led. You can't uh, you know, put a little bit more coal or a little bit more oil into the boilers. Uh, you suddenly have 10,000 generating sources. So uh, they now have huge problems in how to balance. So our software has had to uh, adapt and modify uh, in order to be able to deliver that. So, uh, and, and so now you need to be able to add into your data set not is it going to be a hot day, is it going to be a cold day, but is it going to be a windy day? So you know, that's, a, you know, that's a, a simple short-term example. You know, but if you look even further forward uh, and you look at how the, the drive towards lower-cost sensors is happening, you end up you know, having to answer the question, what if my lettuce could talk to my car? You know, and, and why is that important to an electricity generator? Well, because if you actually decide that the weather's really rather nice um, and all your, your algorithms are saying, well, this is fantastic and, uh, you know, but it's going to be a warm day today, let's turn on the air conditioning. Um, and so you as, a, as an individual now will actually be thinking, right, OK, I need to be buying electricity 
Uh, I need to be buying it and my wind turbines blowing outside. I've got my battery storages at 30%. I need to be topping up because I'm putting on my... Uh, uh, putting on my air conditioning, and all of this is happening automatically you know, with a whole series of algorithms and sort of things that uh, we develop. On the other hand, your lettuce is saying, ah, yes, well, actually, I'm in the boot of the car, and I've got you know, 12 steaks next to me. We're having a barbecue. The doors are going to be open. Let's switch off the air conditioning. Actually, I'm going to have excess supply. I want to be putting it back onto the market. Um, and the spread of low-cost sensors is absolutely going to drive that sort of behaviour. Okay, that's really interesting. I suppose um, while there are obviously lots of benefits to having that kind of data and being able to drive that kind of automation, on the other side, we are seeing a lot more in terms of sort of data privacy regulation. Um, we, next year, I think we've got the EU's new data privacy laws coming into effect. And we've also got banking regulations about data, data privacy What's Brady doing, given that it works with companies in highly regulated industries? How are you sort of protecting yourself against sort of potential data privacy issues? So we, uh, I think like most uh, companies in our space, you know, we have uh, various work streams that are actually going on to make sure that we do secure um, our, you know, the, the data that we actually have. And it's going to become increasingly important to us as we end up with consumers' data. So at the moment, it's it's B2B data, um, and that, that's, that's relatively easy to secure. Uh, but it's not just about securing it, it's about making sure that you, uh, you know, that you wipe it out after a certain period of time. I think it's extremely difficult to secure uh, to secure uh, data today, and you know, if Equifax can be uh, hacked, uh, then you know, for um, you know, smaller companies like ourselves, you just have to take advantage of all the very latest tools um, that are available to you. I think you have no choice but to constantly you know, be aware of that that fight. And just to confirm, Brady isn't regulated by a sort of regulatory body, is it? But it, although its customers are obviously regulated occasionally by That's the correct. FCA. We're not regulated by the FCA. Jumping around a bit, but okay. going back, I suppose, to your results. Um, you mentioned that Brady used to be quite an acquisitive company. Yep. Um, not recently, not in the last few months, while you've been undergoing this sort of change in, in strategic direction. Yep. Um, you also have quite a lot of net cash on the balance sheet. And I just wondered whether you can envisage at some point going back into a sort of M&A strategy? So, in, uh, so as we develop our new, uh, our new growth direction, so I, I suppose today, if you look at us, we're, we're sort of an annuity business and, um, you know, and, and having a, you know, an annual license with higher recurring revenues is actually about developing essentially an annuity cash generating business. Um, and we're going to move from that into being a growth business. And we do that by moving into new product areas like the world of uh, big data. Um, and also, you know, additions to our existing uh, fund, you know, foundation platforms. Uh, and on any occasion, we always look at whether we're going to make it, whether we're going to buy it, or whether we're going to partner with somebody. I don't think historically, we've ever partnered with people. But I think we will, we will be partnering um, to you know, to increase our scale and our leverage, we you know we have four hundred customers, um, and uh, we have a very good channel to market. So absolutely, we always will look at make versus buy, versus partner. Okay, and I imagine for the time being, as you're sort of hoping to return to profitability, 
you'll focus quite a lot on investing back into the business before you look elsewhere? I think that uh, so we always look. And uh, if we see the right opportunity, then we, we, we'll, we'll take it. OK, great. On a slightly different topic, the issues that can affect commodities traders, either positively or negatively, are quite varied. To use an example, there's been quite a bit of coverage in recent weeks about the La Nina weather phenomenon, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, and how it might affect farmers and soft commodities traders. So I just really wondered how Brady manages scenarios like that, where a serious risk to some parts of your customer base might unfold. Is there sort of constant communication with your customers to prepare for those types of events? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the changes that we've uh, instigated in our, our businesses, actually put in an, a separate account management uh, team under Mark Illand, who joins us from you know, Fujitsu. And those are the sorts of conversations we have with our customers all the time. So you know, we, are, you know, we tend not to be affected in the short term by you know, changes in the commodity markets. Um, because we're, you know, we are generally driven not by the commodity price, but by the, uh, you know, the number of transactions and trades rather than the profitability on them. In the longer term, clearly, if somebody goes out of business, then uh, that affects us, and that does happen to us uh, for a variety of uh, a variety of reasons, um, and also their ability to invest in new pieces of technology, especially as we get to a microservices strategy where we now have something. Uh, other than our base offering to uh, take to the market, uh, then then yeah, that does that does affect us. But we are in these companies for the long haul, and we work in partnership with them. We've covered all sorts of topics. Brady has obviously gone through quite a significant strategic shift, as we've already discussed. In your view, how should investors value Brady today? I think they should value Brady today as a business that is is a is an annuity that it's a cash generating business um even in the structures that we've had in the past um with boom and bust um we've been able to generate cash we're going to be um generating more cash as we go forward and then we're going to be investing in a a growth strategy we've already started investing in a growth strategy through uh, big data so today uh, we're a cash generating annuity business um, and looking forward we will move into being a technology growth stock and in the meantime you know one of the things that we're looking to leverage is that we are the only if you want to play in this space uh, we're it Ian thank you for talking to us about Brady uh, it's worth mentioning while you're here that as well as your position there, you also act as director on a number of other boards, including Paysafes. Uh, while we have you in the studio, and if you don't mind, sure, it would be useful just to hear your views on some of the broader trends we're seeing in the fintech sector as well. So we've obviously seen significant M&A activity in the payment space over the last few months. WorldPay is merging with Vantiv, P-House Primera took a stake in Swedish payments company Klarna, and of course Paysafe itself is in the process of being acquired by Blackstone and CBC. Why do you think we're seeing this consolidation in the sector? And do you think we can anticipate more? Is there is this going to be a sort of more general theme among fintech companies going forward? Well, it's specifically in the, uh, the payments uh, industry, it's all about scale. Um, and um, so, yes, absolutely, we'll continue to see uh, a, a rush for scale. And uh, in companies like Paysafe and, and WorldPay, you are eventually competing head on with 
uh, you know, with Amazon, PayPal, you know, Facebook's now uh, introduced with the Facebook Messenger payment uh, system, uh, a you know, a micropayments uh, scheme. So you're constantly going to be battling against scale. Uh, in the case of PaySafe, they have a premium market position because they have chosen to invest in technology that allows them to evaluate risk uh, at a in a better than uh, their competition, and so they can take you know, what is in, in essence riskier business, understand what that risk is, and get the premium for it. So they're using their technology to de-risk uh, a risky uh, a riskier market such as uh, a, a gaming or gambling. So um, there will be pieces like that premium end of the market that you will put with uh, more run of the mill payments. So yeah, you're absolutely going to uh, see consolidation in that market. Okay, well, Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. That's all we've got time for, which leads me to say thank you for listening to Boardroom Talk. For more of our podcasts, search for the IC in iTunes, Acast, or the Investors Chronicle website. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.